but now we're in a different, we're now in a place where it's not just a geopolitical event. Like it's not just a war in Ukraine. It's not just the problems with China. It's really a, a structural shift in the way the world is acting. Um, the dominant part of this is a move away from globalization. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I, you know, when we move towards what might be called deglobalization, it may as well also be called de-Chinaization mm -hmm. because the dominant area that we're moving away from in the globe is China. Um, and so there'll be uh, either uh, bringing home for the supply chain or moving the supply chain to allies. Yellen gave a talk in South Korea some a few months ago where she talked about friend shoring, where we would maybe not onshore, but we wouldn't uh but we would move things towards our friends towards welcome to afo wealth management forward a podcast about finance accounting technology and entrepreneurship we apply our decades worth of experience and insight into what makes businesses work so we can help others grow both personally and professionally in this ever-evolving marketplace we help accounting firms and financial advisors grow their practice through the adoption of holistic wealth management services Learn from industry leaders and subject matter experts to unlock the secrets of their success. A podcast that shows people and companies the transformative power of technology so they don't fear it, but instead harness it. Don't fight the robots, team up with them. And here are your hosts, Rory Henry, Director of Business Development and CEO Rob Santos of Arrowroot Family Office. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, we have a fantastic guest uh, with us. Uh, he has... Uh, his PhD uh, from uh, MIT. Uh, he has served as uh, the head of risk uh, at Morgan Stanley, uh, chief risk officer for the University of California. Uh, he's worked at Bridgewater with Ray Dalio uh, at the, uh, with the SEC and the Treasury Department, assisting uh, in the post-2008 financial crisis. He's authored a couple books, The End of Theory and A Demon of Our Own Design. Sorry. He's the co-founder uh, and head of risk at, at Fabric. So let me introduce our esteemed guest, Rick Bookstaver. Rick, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. All right, let's get started here. I always like stories. Uh, <laughs> and you have a great story. You went through the 2008 financial crisis. Um, you know, can you give our audience a background on yourself? And then, you know, let's talk about what led you uh, to create risk. I'm sorry, to create fabric. Yeah, sure. So uh, my career has been in finance in a lot of different areas. Uh, you know, as you pointed out, uh, I started out on the sell side at Morgan Stanley and at Solomon Brothers. Uh, I was in charge of market risk at Morgan Stanley, then saw firm-wide risk, uh, oversaw firm-wide risk at Solomon. Uh, Solomon then became Smith, Solomon Smith Barney, and I was still there at that point, but then uh, left, well, was shown the door I once became Citigroup, uh, along with some other uh, people on the trading side at Solomon. So I sort of wear that more as a uh, badge of merit than anything else. <laughs> but but at that point, I moved to the buy side uh, at Moore Capital, uh, worked actually at the Ziff Brothers family office, uh, and then uh, Bridgewater, as you mentioned. And because of the book that I wrote, A Demon of Our Own Design, it came out in 2007, and it really highlighted the fragility of the financial system, the leverage 
the what's called tight coupling between one action and the next. Uh, and then, of course, the crisis occurred. And so I was asked to uh, come to Washington to sort of help pick up the pieces and figure out how to rejigger the financial system. I thought I'd be there for two years, ended up six, and uh, then moved from there to uh, University of California. You mentioned uh, the thing that really is important in this journey uh, through all these places is the change in orientation that I had while I was at Treasury. So at Treasury, and also I worked at the SEC, the focus was on banks and institutions. Mm -hmm. But the problems were occurring from individuals. And I felt like the individuals were sort of given short shrift in this. They they were not being uh, an area of focus. And so I wanted to reorient my focus towards individuals. And the first step in that was working at University of California in their pension and endowment, because although it's not an individual, it's an asset owner, just like individuals are asset owners. Are you an accountant looking to generate more revenue and secure your future success as automation and artificial intelligence revolutionize the accounting profession? If so, contact us at AFO Wealth Management Forward. We specialize in helping accountants and advisors just like you build a custom brand to pinpoint your optimal clientele, generate highly qualified leads through our data-driven digital marketing, and execute wealth management growth services to bring more value to your firm and your client's life. Our strategic approach to branding, marketing, and wealth management is carefully tailored to attract ideal clients, increase customer retention rates, and cultivate lasting relationships with clients across generations. Visit wealthmanagementforward.com to book your free consultation to find out how you can elevate your practice. And it shares the same problems of long time frame and so on that asset owners, uh, individuals would have. Uh, and while I was there, uh, I was joined by a friend of mine, Govinda Quish, and we realized the place to focus, really, if you're going to do this as a business anyway, is financial advisors and not pension funds. And uh, so that's when we started Fabric. Uh, then I left University of California, and we developed it. University of California, by the way, is a, a partner, is a part owner of Fabric, uh, reflecting their interests in the time I was there. Um, and so now, the, the whole objective of Fabric is to really provide institutional level tools to fin the wealth management community, mm -hmm. uh, really focus not just on risk, but on doing a better job of portfolio design, portfolio rebalancing, basically helping people build better portfolios. Yeah, can you talk about that? Because th there is a difference between uh, an individual and an institution, you know, and, and you stated that, you know, many of the the solutions out there uh, were made for institutions. Can you talk about what you're doing differently with Fabric in regards to really helping advisors with those individuals? Sure. The, the key thing, if you look at risk management, starting from, like I've been in risk management since the early 1990s, yeah. and for institutions, the focus is very short term. If you're yeah, at, for hedge funds, it's really small. It's, you know, it's like about days, months, you know? Yeah. Well, trading desks, it's like dazed. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so a short time frame, uh, whereas individuals, you know, have time frames that are out years. Mm -hmm. um, so the time frame is different. The other thing that's different 
Well, and let me just say, because of the difference in time frame, risks that matter for a hedge fund or a broker dealer don't matter necessarily for an individual. Mm -hmm. And the other difference is that if you're a hedge fund, a bank, a portfolio manager, what matters is returns. Your risk is the risk of your returns varying. If you're an individual, your risk comes from the other side too. The risk that uh, in terms of your lifestyle, in terms of your job, in terms of maybe think of it as a risk, you're single, suddenly you get married and you are going to have three kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know that we think about that as a risk, but it's an uncertainty that gets resolved and is an important part of your equation. Uh, so, so the risk for individuals is also multidimensional. It's not just return. Yeah. I mean, you have look at age, uh, income, uh, you look at, uh, you know, job. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I interview a lot of people from the accounting side. There's so much data now uh, uh, coming into all the software platforms, uh, Rick. So how, how granular can you get with these individuals in, in, in recognizing the different types of risk uh, involved? The, the granularity, uh, the answer is you can get granular, but in a view that people usually don't take. Uh, let me give you an example. You know, you might think if you look at every asset in your portfolio, you're being granular and, and you are, you know, if you have 500 assets, but you can't be intelligently granular because you're trying to grapple with, you know, 500 different stocks. Yeah. Uh, what you have to do is to reorient your view and look at things in factor space rather than in asset space. And uh, I think a lot of people now understand the focus that exists with risk factors. So, so instead of looking at, I've got IBM and I've got Apple and I have Exxon, what you do is you say, okay, I have exposure to different sectors. Yeah. So I have sector factor exposure. I have exposure to different countries. I have exposure to different styles, you know, value versus growth, low cap versus high cap. And when you boil things down and re reorient them in terms of factor exposures, now instead of trying to deal with and trying to drill down to 500 stocks, you can represent things by, say, 10 different relevant factors. So now you get a better read on uh, the risk, um, and you do it in a way that still is respecting the fact that you know things finally occur in a granular level. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's really the route to take if you want to get granular and look at your portfolio in a fine-tuned way. Yeah. But I, I think I either read or saw you state that, that 80 to 90% of your portfolio really can be explained by a handful of factors. You know, what are the, what are those main factors, Rick? So, yeah, that's right. That of course, everybody knows that the dominant factor is the market. However you right. want to define that. S&P 500, MSCI, ACWI, um, and that one factor, think of it as the key linchpin risk factor, really dominates more the greater the risk in the market. You know, when there's a major problem in the market, it's like suddenly everything looks like risk. Everything just looks like the market. Um, then the other factors will vary based on your tilt versus, say, MSCI ACWI, uh, according to your target portfolio. Um, another factor that a lot of people have a focus on is 
what might be called uh, beta. Uh, we use the MSCI factor model. Uh, we have a partnership with MSCI and they have a factor called beta. And basically what that means is how much does your stock tend to move when the market moves? So, you know, is the beta big or small? Uh, and, and the beta of your stock reflects a lot of things, how leveraged the stock tends to be, how risky its sector tends to be. Um, so beta tends to be another factor that uh, is pretty dominant. Then as you move down from there, it's really, are you biased from in one sector versus another? Uh, do you tend to be biased in lower or higher cap stocks? Uh, a lot of people right now, and certainly a year ago. So um, so over the, the last year or two with FANG stocks being so dominant, mm -hmm. people had more technology factor exposure than they probably realized because right. the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 made up about 25% of the market cap. Yeah. And most of those were sort of technology oriented. So you wouldn't recognize that if you're just staring at your portfolio, but you would recognize it if you broke it into factors. And so I guess bottom line is what we do at that what we do at Fabric is start with a risk-aware portfolio design looking through a factor lens rather than trying to grapple with all the individual assets. Right. And you do uh, also, it takes into account private equity and, and real estate uh, as well. So not just uh, public assets, but private assets as well, correct? Right. Yeah. What you need to do, obviously, if you've got a portfolio is look at the risk in the whole portfolio. Right. And for uh, many people, that includes uh, private equity, uh, real estate, maybe alternatives like hedge funds. And the uh, MSCI factor model that we use has factors that deal with these private assets. So you can really pull everything together and look at your risk holistically. And, you know, and also, if you're rebalancing your portfolio, rebalance, you can rebalance your liquid public positions. You can't rebalance very well your private equity ones, <laughs> but you better keep the private equity in mind uh, when you're doing things you know, with the public assets. Yeah. And speaking of risk, and I know you had a use case, you talked about uh, real estate in Menlo Park, right? Uh, or you're adding risk of, you know, the technology sector because uh, of where you're located. Can you talk about a, a use case here? Yeah. So that's a, a good example. <laughs> Excuse me. So that's a good example of where you need to have sort of this factor lens and sort of think mm -hmm. a little bit out of the box. Uh, when I was at University of California, we had a we basically bought a an office park at Menlo Park, yeah. uh, which is sort of the the high end of Silicon Valley. Um, it's also where all the private equity firms tend to be. <laughs> um, and if you just put that in your real estate bucket, you'd be missing the key point in terms of risk because it also has technology exposure, obviously. Right. Um, it, it's not just real estate. It's not just office real estate. It's not even just office real estate located in the uh, San Francisco area. It's technology exposure. Um, so we would do, so we would look with a factor lens at our real estate. And when we would look at that particular deal, it would add exposure to our overall factor, uh, to our overall technology, uh, factor exposure. Um, 
And so if you're rebalancing, you'd want to take into account that, oh my gosh, I already have technology sitting here because of my real estate deal. Right. And, and we're seeing, uh, obviously, in the real estate market is currently being affected uh, and uh, technology stocks have uh, obviously been affected this year as well. I want to take a step back, Rick, and talk about your first book, uh, Demon of Your Own Design, uh, because you wrote that book in a lead up to the 2008 financial crisis, and you saw that the markets uh, were being leveraged and there were certain financial innovations that saw that you saw some concern with. Can you talk about um, that book and what you saw um, in regards to the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis? When I, I wrote that book over a period of time, it came out in 2007, but obviously I wrote it in the period before that uh, because there was a tendency occurring as we went into the 2000s uh, of increasing leverage in, under various okay. guises so that it might not appear that a portfolio is levered, but they're getting leverage through clever means, through, quote, financial innovation, unquote. I, I, I've never seen innovation be a bad word, but when it comes to finance, maybe it is sometimes. And, and another thing besides uh, leverage was just an ongoing complexity in uh, derivatives and credit default swaps, mm -hmm. uh, a complexity where it was very hard to quite figure out what was going on. Uh, and by the way, that complexity often was intentional because if you're a broker dealer, if you could put something out there that you understood, but other people couldn't, you could probably price it uh, pretty well and nobody would have a clue. So that's a little bit of a cynical view, but there it is. Um, so complexity was one thing that I saw growing. The other thing that I saw growing uh, was what's called tight coupling. This is a term I borrowed from engineering a tightly coupled process is a process where one thing follows from the next and you just can't intervene fast enough to stop that process. So, you know, a rocket taking off. Actually, something as prosaic as baking bread is a tightly coupled process because <laughs> once it gets going, you just can't say stop for a minute. I, I forgot something. Um, so if you've got complexity and tight coupling, you always have the risk of what actually are called normal accidents occurring. They're normal because they happen all the time. And so what I was saying is the market has been structured because of the nature of its complexity and leverage and tight coupling to where something can go wrong. And sure enough, you know, something went wrong. Uh, and uh, so that, that really led to a lot of the changes, that philosophy led to a lot of the changes that we saw post-crisis, uh, moving towards standardized swaps, for example, requiring transparency for hedge funds uh, to try to make sure the world was a little more transparent and obvious. Yeah, and that leads me to what's going on with crypto and FTX. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on Sam Bakeman fried uh, what you see going on in regards to the crypto market. And I saw somewhere in the simplest of terms, uh, it would be uh, as if Jamie Dimon, uh, you know, uh, who runs uh, JP Morgan Chase, uh, one day, uh, if you're a Chase customer, you woke up and your money was gone. And where did it go? Uh, well, it went to Jamie Dimon's personal trading platform and then to Jamie Dimon personally. So I'd love to get your thoughts on, on what's going on with FTX, crypto, and, and, and SPF. Sure. Um, I could go on about crypto for a long time because I, <laughs> I, I'm a very strong critic of crypto. Uh, so let me start off with crypto and then I'll get into FTX. Mm -hmm. uh, 
assets are called assets because they have value and there's a basis for their value. Crypto has no basis in value. Uh, should it should Bitcoin be worth five hundred dollars, twenty thousand dollars, half a million dollars? I don't know. There's no way to value it. It's only its value is simply what the next guy is willing to pay for it. So if you're owning it, it's sort of a greater fool theory approach to the world. Right. Um, and you know, and I could go on, but you know, the the whole notion of crypto, I think, is something that only makes sense if you're some sort of a true believer in the cause. And fewer and fewer people are uh, willing to jump onto that and be a true believer. Uh, there'll always be people who want to hold it. And the more people who just hold it, the more its value can be maintained. Because if nobody trades, you don't get a mark to market. Uh, so, so I think crypto is problematic. You can somewhat uh, break the crypto argument away from the FTX argument. Uh, except that to say, if somebody is into crypto, in spite of the fact that it has no uh, tethering to the real world, they probably are also not tethered to the real world in terms of things like laws, things like accounting. Uh, you know, Controls, so you run into compliance. one problem after another because they don't. They, they, in my view, they have to be fairly naive to be really totally into crypto. And that naivete is also going to be manifest in them simply not managing their business well. Uh, you can get there without fraud. Now, whether there's fraud involved, that's all the more so. But you, you don't even need fraud to get into the ridiculous position that we see in FTX. You just need to be totally clueless and indifferent to laws and regulations and accounting. Now, uh, I, I know you worked at Bridgewater. I'm a big Ray Dalio fan. Uh, I love his book, Principles. I, I'm fascinated by the Changing World Order um, book that he put out. Uh, and he seems like he's predicting a, a lot of this stuff on what's going on in the world right now. Uh, can you talk about your experience at, at Bridgewater and, and working with Ray? Um, and do you take on some of those same methodologies in regards to his management style? Yeah, I uh, when I was at it was a culture shock when I got to uh, Bridgewater and it was not as big an issue for me. I came in at a senior level. Mm -hmm. So the notion of radical transparency and uh, what I guess in China would have been called struggle sessions, you know, where everybody's <laughs> piling on. I, I didn't have that happen. Um, I, and I don't think Bridgewater needs that uh, to be successful. Uh, the ultimate thing Bridgewater needs to be successful is Ray Dalio. Yeah, uh, he's an iconoclastic thinker, uh, and really sort of an unusual personality in many ways. Um, How so? So you could strip away a lot of the stuff that's there, go on the basis of the way Ray Dalio thinks and his views, and you'd be ninety percent of the way to where Bridgewater is. Mm -hmm. um, I think that. The one thing I learned, the most important thing I learned from Ray, which I didn't appreciate immediately, is the value in looking deeply at history. Now, yes. that's different than saying the value of looking at the last two years. I don't <laughs> believe that you can manage risk by looking at what risk has been over the last two years. But I do believe that if you look, say, over the post 
Great Depression period at what recessions have been like or what leveraged liquidity crises have been like, you know, they kind of follow the same type of patterns. Mm -hmm. um, so I've, I've gotten that sort of respect for history. Of course, he goes further back than that. Yeah. When, when I was there, uh, I was there during the financial crisis before I went to Treasury and SEC, mm -hmm. and he was looking at the Weimar Republic. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, I, I, I don't get it. You know, <laughs> we're living here in 2008, and you're saying the Weimar Republic? But, you know, but that's sort of the, his mindset. And, yeah. and coming there as somebody who's very quantitative, very mathematical, uh, I think I changed for the better by realizing that there's only so much you can get out of math mm -hmm. and that there's a lot to get out of um, uh, an understanding of the history of the markets and the way people act in the markets. Yeah. And he's, he's great at really telling that story. You know, I'm interested, obviously what's going on uh, in, in geopolitics right now and the, the war in Ukraine and the, and China and um, and in regards to our currency, can you talk about the geopolitical implications and what we really need thinking about in regards uh, to risk in that sense? Yeah, the, what's interesting right now about the geopolitical situation is usually geopolitics doesn't have a long-term effect on the markets, surprisingly enough. Um, but now we're in a different, we're now in a place where it's not just a geopolitical event, like it's not just the war in Ukraine, it's not just the problems with China, it's really a, a structural shift in the way the world is acting. Um, the dominant part of this is a move away from globalization. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, I, you know, when we move towards what might be called deglobalization, it may as well also be called de-Chinaization, mm -hmm. because the dominant area that we're moving away from in the globe is China. Um, and so they'll be uh, either uh, bringing home for the supply chain or moving the supply chain to allies. Yellen gave a talk in South Korea some a few months ago where she talked about friend shoring, where we would maybe not onshore, but we wouldn't, uh, but we would move things towards our friends, towards allies where we couldn't face the sort of issues that have occurred with Russia, could occur with China, and so on. And this is a multi-year process. You know, globalization moved forward and developed over a 40-year period, yeah. uh, undoing some parts of that, moving things onshore and so on. It's going to be a multi-year process, and it'll be painful short-term, but it'll lead to much more robust and low-risk uh, economy longer-term. Fascinating. I know Ray, I mean, Ray talks about this, the ascension of, of, of the UN in China uh, and the rise and fall of not civilizations, the, you know, the rise and fall of empires. And he, it almost states that, you know, this is almost a foregone conclusion based on, on history. Do you see that uh, as well? Um, you know, Ray's book, or, and he has a wonderful 45 minute YouTube. Yeah, I watched that. On, wonderful. On his, the show on this. Uh, really, if you just go through his that uh, video, you totally get the point. Uh, he, you know, he feels like there's a, a set structure for how for the rise and fall of uh, empires. Yeah. And on that basis, he, you know, feels like 
we're on the wane and China's on the rise. And uh, I, yeah, he's always been uh, very positive towards China. He has a lot of relationships with people in China. Uh, I don't know if things will go that way or not. Um, if we had been more aggressive in the way that we're going now, say 10 years ago, I think the the conclusion would be easier to, to make. Um, uh, so I, I don't know that the primacy moves away from the US and Europe towards China. We'll have to see. It's not a fair comparison at this point, but I do remember uh, in the 1980s, the view that Japan, Japan. was going to overtake the US. Um, and, you know, of course, this isn't that, you know, this has more lakes to it than right. I think that argument did. But, you know, that was a, a similar view. Um, uh, and then, of course, there's the, the issue of mil will things ever get to the point that there's a military conflict right. between the U.S. and China? Uh, I don't think that you can take that out of the equation. Uh, nobody thought that Russia would do what it did. Yeah. Um, so, you know, so we're in a world where there's big risks, uh, not, you know, we talk about inflation, we talk about recession, fine, but there's really substantial risks that are world changing. Yeah. Uh, and some of these things related to deglobalization or de-Chinization, uh, the conflict we'll have with uh, China and with Russia are in this group. Uh, and this leads me to the next question, because uh, I think it's on everybody's mind. We have a looming recession uh, that looks to be on the horizon. Uh, I've seen you read, write a couple articles here recently. Can you talk about uh, how this is going to affect the individual investor and how they can best prepare um, for a looming recession? Sure. The, if you go back, again, thinking back on what I was saying with Ray Dalio, um, if you look back at previous recessions, most of them, the market drops 25 to 35%. There are a couple that are total outliers where it's gone down 50 plus percent, but there's a lot more going on in those cases than just uh, what, you know, than just pure recession. And we're, you know, so we already have discounted to some extent with the drop in the market, an idea of recession, but recession is not really a dominant issue for most individuals. Now, if you're retired, uh, you know, and you're, you're looking forward five, 10 years, yeah, it does matter. If you're looking 15, 20, 25 years, it's not a dominant risk. Mm -hmm. Because recessions occur, and then two to four years later, you're back on track. Uh, so for most individuals, I don't know that recession is the thing that I'd have front and center in my mind. All right. Um, you can, and, and there, there's kind of a, a broader point here that uh, if you look at the news cycle and you look at what's on CNBC, you know, on any of the news channels, the business channels, um, for an individual investor, a lot of that's just noise. Mm -hmm. You could really turn the TV off and not lose much at all. Um, because the day-to-day -day doesn't matter if you're an individual and you have a long time frame. Uh, and I think people may be swayed to take actions based on what they're seeing day-to-day, -day, which 
actually are not relevant given the time frame for their investments and their you know guarding for their lifestyle and their re retirement yeah no i agree um we're inundated with information obviously with these devices and uh, what we're seeing on the news so you know people are affected by that and it's always say it's good to have an advisor to make sure you don't necessarily jump off that roller coaster um any other parting thoughts you want to share uh, with our audience here rick i think that you know so if i'm saying there's a lot of risks maybe you don't have to think about so what are the risks you should think about mm -hmm. um one of them i think is the risk of a changing world due to what we're seeing geopolitically due to deglobalization uh you know i think that that's a clear one another risk that's really important and people kind of have in the back of their mind but they don't really grapple with is climate um the thing about climate risk is some people say, okay, fine, you know, it's 30 years out, you know, whatever. No, you know, climate risk is something that's occurring right now. Uh, if you just look at this last summer, if you look at just this last summer, you know, with the drought conditions and the heat, one thing that got affected by it was energy production. I don't know that people would have thought two years ago that, ah, climate risk, energy production. But because of the drought, Norway gets 95% of its electricity through hydroelectric. If there's less water, they don't get enough electricity. And that's occurred there. Uh, the same thing with uh, some China and some US hydroelectric power. Um, France gets most of their power through nuclear. Uh, and you have to cool those plants and that requires water and it requires water that's not hot. Uh, we actually got to the point where in France, not only was it an issue of not having a lot of water flowing through the rivers to use to cool the plants, but there are restrictions that got kind of eased for the time being that the plants couldn't throw hot water into the rivers uh, if the temperature wow. was above a certain amount. Okay, so, so energy becomes an issue. Obviously, agriculture becomes an issue um, because of drought. Then we have the issues of flooding that we saw, uh, issues of production uh, in countries, labor-based production where heat was getting too high. So all these things already are affecting us and they're long-term, they're not gonna disappear. So for an individual investor, that risk is really quite important. Eric, so it sounds like obviously the individual investors uh, has a risk here in regards to uh, climate and, uh, and it is affecting us. Um, currently and, uh, and for the long term. So this leads me into the topic of ESG because we've interviewed a number of guests on the podcast. I've recently interviewed Amrith Ramkumar from the Wall Street Journal, who's a climate reporter. Uh, and you know we talked about labeled ESG funds, uh, ESG being used as a marketing tool. So I'd love to get your thoughts uh, on ESG um, and how we can really get uniformity um, in regulation here uh, to make sure that we're making the, the correct decisions in regards to our investments? And then how do we factor in risk uh, in regards to ESG as well? I, you know, ESG is a broader issue than just climate. Yeah. Uh, so I hate to put climate risk into the bucket of ESG because it suddenly sort of politicizes it in a way because there's a lot of people looking different ways about ESG, about the S or the G. Mm -hmm. uh, Climate is a reality, and I don't care, you know, whether you put it in the ESG or you talk about climate, uh, but people are waking up 
to its actual economic effects. And so you don't have to you know, have a particular political orientation, uh, as you do when you talk about ESG, to be concerned. It's dollars and cents. Yeah. If you're in finance, you just do the calculations, and the impact of climate risk is evident and will be increasingly evident. Um, so, uh, and 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 it's difficult because you can't just say, "Here's the effect it will have on the market." It's going to have an effect on different risk factors. Yeah. So, so you can have a portfolio that uh, is going to be more prone to problems with climate uh, if you're exposed to one particular risk factor versus another. Um, and the thing about climate also is that the effect is, is manifest and will grow, but there'll be a point where people start to really turn their attention towards it. Mm -hmm. Everybody you know, has, uh, of course, been focused in the last while on COVID and the pandemic, now the focus is on inflation, recession. There's some point where people will be able to take a breath and wake up and realize, oh my gosh, there's all these issues going on in energy and agriculture and uh, labor-intensive production in India, you know, take your pick, that are all happening now. And I've got to start to reprice based on it. So so the, the main point is that people finally will wake up and realize that there's real dollar and cents impacts from what goes on because of climate change, from drought, from flooding, from heat. Uh, it's it's not some ethereal thing. It's not something that you have to have a particular social orientation to care about. Uh, and once people, you know, broadly speaking, by people I mean investors, broadly speaking, wake up to that, you'll see a big repricing occur. Yeah. Uh, and that's the risk that I think people have to be attuned to. Yeah. I mean, does it take for those the events to actually occur? <laughs> that's those big floods or those big droughts um, for that to happen. Do you have to have those big events for that repricing to occur? Uh, you have to have the expectation of them occurring in the future and the level of extreme of them occurring. So, you know, if you just take what happened this year and just say, okay, that was that, then of course you don't reprice based on it. But if you take it and you think that sort of thing will continue year after year after year with increasing uh, velocity, then you suddenly say, you know what? There's certain aspects of what I'm doing that I have to start to reprice uh, because some sectors, some countries are going to be differentially affected over time by these things. I don't know what we get out of Pakistan. But you know, but if you've got an if you've got a stock that has a loading on the on the risk factor of Pakistan, you're going to have a problem if the sort of flooding we saw this year yeah. uh, occurs, say even worse, say every third year, it's going to be a different world. Yeah. And if you're uh, into shipping up major rivers, the Rhine or uh, even the Mississippi. And that's and you have a business that's got a high factor loading on that as a supply chain, you're going to have a problem because like even this year, uh, the traffic for uh, ships was 30 percent of what it normally was because of the difficulty navigating with the lower level of the rivers. Oh, wow. So, so, you know, this it's, uh, you know, it's there to be 
seen. And then all you have to do is say, okay, how does this project forward? What's being affected by it? How do I discount that back so today? And then you're repricing based on that. All right. All right, Rick. Thank you so much. I mean, there's a lot of risk in there. We talked about changing world order, potential floods. Yeah. Um, let's leave our audience with something optimistic. What, what, are you, what are you optimistic about here moving forward in the future? Um, I'm optimistic shorter term. One thing to make clear is that I don't really like to prognosticate. So I'm not going to say, oh, the market's going to go up or, oh, the market's going to go down. Mm -hmm. But I do think the risk now shorter term is lower than it has been uh, for the last while because we all kind of know where we're sitting. We know there's inflation and we can figure out what's the risk around inflation. We know there's the prospect of recession and we know what a recession looks like. We know that uh, you know the bubble that exists in FANG stocks is at least slow leaking. Uh, and uh, there wasn't a major pop of, you know, or bursting of that bubble. So in a way, things still have to play out. But a lot of the risk is resolved in the sense that we sort of know the uh, hand that we've been dealt. So whether the market goes down a lot or up a lot, I don't know. But mm -hmm. I think the risk that we have shorter term is uh, not as great as it has been over the past few years. And, and for that matter, pandemic. I mean, it's really, you know, the risk that we had, uh, you know, if you're saying in March or April or May of 2020, yeah. you had no clue <laughs> right. what could happen. Now that yeah. risk is largely resolved. Great, another Great Depression, potentially. What? I said another Great Depression, potentially, uh, in March or April. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's something people, of course, some people still view uh, the world is about to blow into pieces. Um, if I see one more Robert Kiyosaki uh, piece on Yahoo about the doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's, you know, there's this thing that even a clock that stopped is right twice a day. Twice a day. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> I say that on the golf course when I had a good shot, Rick. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Rick. This is great. I love this risk episode and is event, the current events episode. We're going to have to have you on uh, again in the future here. Yeah, let's see. Yeah. So next year I can come on again. You can tell me when the market's down yeah. 40% <laughs> and we're in the throes of a huge recession and just remind me of what I just said today. I will. I will. <laughs> uh, if everybody wants to get in touch with it, Rick, or, or check out uh, a fabric, what's the best way to do so? Sure. Um, so the, our website is fabricrisk.com. And uh, uh, you can uh, check that out. Uh, you can get a, a demo. It's, it's intended for portfolio design and risk for financial advisors and their clients. Uh, you know, that's really the focus that we have. Uh, as I've mentioned, you know, the, it's predicated on trying to look at the world with a factor view uh, which is much more intuitive and easy to grapple with uh, for, uh, you know, for your clients. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to have people tie and communicate with me. I also, I, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I write posts there every now and then. You can always message me there too. Yeah. Yeah. Great posts, great articles, uh, uh, Rick. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and I look forward to doing this here uh, next year. Okay. It's great Rick. to talk with you. Thanks. 
All opinions expressed by Rob Santos and Rory Henry on this website podcast interview are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Arrowroot Family Office LLC or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. Past performance is not indicative.